Let's go back to the Westminster Confession, and we are still on chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. And you wonder, why are you taking so long on that? But of course you're not asking that, because you know the answer. Because it's of Christ the Mediator. There's a lot to talk about, and we want to get it right. Now, so far, we have looked at Christ, the Father's appointment of the Son, to the office of mediation. And then last week, we looked at what's called the hypostatic union. The fact that Christ is one person with a divine nature and a human nature and how they relate. We're going to look tonight particularly, I'm actually going to do two whole paragraphs tonight. They're long ones. And then I'll try to wrap it up next week. But uh, And then we'll move to chapter 9. But uh, uh, what is the mediatorial work of Christ? But That'll be paragraph 4. But first we have paragraph 3, which makes a point that we may not think about. And you read this paragraph and you go, you know, those Westminster divines were pretty astute theologians, and in fact, they were. And they're going to talk about how, in his humanity, Christ was furnished by God through the ministry of the Spirit. Let me read paragraph 3. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. That's the basic point. Christ, in his humanity, being anointed with the Holy Spirit. Having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all judgment and power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. At the heart of that statement is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to furnish Christ in his humanity that was was needed for the work of our our mediation. Well, uh, Jesus was unique, they're saying, not only that he had a divine nature, and he certainly is unique, he's the one God-man, but also in the fullness of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which he enjoyed. Uh, of course, we think of uh, John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, other passages where Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him. Of course, we remember his incarnation by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit came upon his mother and, and, and caused him to be made man. And so his life was suffused by the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, Psalm 45, 7 speaks of his anointing. The Father says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so it was prophesied that the Messiah would be uniquely bestowed with the possession of, the ministry of, the furnishing of the Holy Spirit. And so Christ fulfilled his work not only by his divine power, but in his humanity by the working of the Holy Spirit. This reminds us that the work of Christ was a Trinitarian accomplishment. Generally speaking, the grid we'll have is that the Father ordains, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit enables. That's going to be true of pretty much all of salvation. And so it was in in the ministry of Christ. The Father ordained his work and commissioned him and commanded him. Christ will actually accomplish it, and he will accomplish it by the power of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, now, one thing being said here, and again, the, the emphasis here 
is that we need to view, when you're reading the Gospels, we need to view Jesus as the Son of God, but we also need to view him as that one man, the second Adam, the, the covenant head of the redeemed human race, and all that he will accomplish by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's something of an in-house debate that's been going on a little bit in recent years, and it's not a bad debate, over when Jesus performed miracles, did he do so by his divine nature, or did he do so in his human nature by means of the Holy Spirit? I'm not going to really come to I think it's a decent question. I know some people who argue that he actually performed all of his works in his human nature by means of the Holy Spirit. I actually don't think we can go that far. But you do have him, for instance, when he's feeding the 5,000, where he prays to the Father. He, you know, the, the, the loaves and fishes are brought by the little boy, Andrew brought, and Jesus takes him in his hands, and he prays to the Father. So this is Jesus in his spirit-filled anointedness. And there is a great sense in which what Jesus does in his ministry, I think particularly of many of the miracles, is, an, is the Father's work by the Spirit in him through prayer. Uh, now, the, the, the divines are going to make the point, and they're pulling in strands from different places in the New Testament, that Jesus fulfilled his work because, and he was called to it, and therefore he was furnished with all that he needed in which to do so. He possessed all wisdom and knowledge. And so where does Jesus get this wisdom that, that confounds them? Well, you say, well, that's because he is the Son of God, and, and he is. It's also true because he is filled with the Holy Spirit and of wisdom and of knowledge. Uh, Hebrews uh, 7.26 points out that he was holy and undefiled. Now, that's certainly in his human nature. And uh, it's by the Holy Spirit that he does this. And as such, he was equipped, he was fitted to perform the work of our mediator and surety. Now, one thing this means is that to be a Christian, uh, we say we believe in Jesus. You, you'll often hear me and Chad and others use the language, we have union with Christ through faith. That's because the, the number one New Testament description of our relationship is in Christ. Paul's expression, in Christ this, in Christ that. And, and that really is shorthand for in union with Christ. And we have union with him through faith, but he has supernatural union with us by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not for nothing that John Calvin was called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And when you think of people, Christians who really think about the Holy Spirit today, you generally think of Pentecostals. Uh, and they're to be applauded for the fact that that is true, although I think it's often the Holy Spirit separated from the work of the Father and the Son. But the Bible teaches that to be a Christian is to be a person who has union through faith by the Spirit with the one who is filled with the Spirit and therefore, as he says, pours out the Spirit without measure. Jesus said that. I have been given the Spirit without measure that I would pour out the Spirit without measure. And so the ordinary Christian life is life in the Spirit. You say, well, how do I lead a supernatural, spirit-filled life in union with Christ? And we automatically think, is this some super exceptional Christian? No, it's the ordinary Christian. You're filled with the Holy Spirit by reading your Bible, by attending to the sermons in a faithful church, 
by praying, by meditating and memorizing scripture and, and walking in faith. And what will ha- see what happens is there will be power at work in you and through you so that you will lead an ordinary life that has supernatural implications. And this is a Christian. This is why I was talking to the elders about this on another subject at the session meeting. Um, I love how in the parable of the soils, when Jesus describes the good soil, and he says it bears fruit, in some cases 30-fold, in other cases 60-fold, in other cases 100-fold. Now, there's a difference between 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, but it's all a lot. Every true Christian bears, lives, in, lives a supernatural life. And what should be going on in your homes is something that your neighbors should be looking out the window going, what are they doing over there? Are they like praying together? Did, you, did those children obey their parents? I remember when our kids were in Little League, uh, particularly in Florida. When we were in the Champion League here, so it was mainly Christians. But in Florida, and it, it, was not an extra, it shouldn't be an extraordinary thing at Little League Baseball, for another family to come over and go, can you explain your marriage to me? That you seem to love each other. And, 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 and the ordinary Christian life is suffused with the Holy Spirit because our Savior is the one who received the Spirit without measure, lived out the life in the Spirit without measure, and he was holy. How are we able to overcome sin? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How are we able to change? You know, you may have noticed people don't change. I'm getting to be the age where you run across people now and again you knew like 50 years ago, and your first thought is usually, it's the same snotty kid as he was in second grade. I mean, it's that same attitude. It's the same, you know. People don't change, but we we have the power to change. And to be growing in godliness and the grace of the Lord. Why? Because Christ, our mediator, was filled with the Spirit, both for the performance of his work and then to pour out on his people. Now, the confession points out that having so provided for his son, God therefore placed all power and judgment in his hand. He made Christ our covenant head, and he commanded him to do the work of our redemption. Acts 10.38 is a place where Peter's talking to Cornelius, and he says he, God has filled him with the Holy Spirit and power that he would do these things. And he was talking about Jesus' teaching and his miracles. Now, a surety, you remember, is one who makes himself liable for the, for the debts of another, for the default or miscarriage of another. And Christ did this. He he willingly took up this work and he was furnished with the Holy Spirit because he knew the work he was principally going to do was he was going to pay the debt of our sin on the cross. If he's going to be our surety, if he's going to pay the debts that we owe, those are the that is the curse of the broken covenant. So he bore our curse so the covenant blessing of eternal life might come to us. And for that, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, paragraph four is an important paragraph. I'm going to work through it slowly. And this is, you say, well, what then did he do? Well, here's what he did. The office, the Lord Jesus did most willingly, this office, mediator, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his bodies was crucified and died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. 
On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and he shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Now that's about as succinct and thorough a statement of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you will find. Let's look at that piece by piece. First, Jesus fully satisfied divine justice. And first of all, he who is God became man and placed himself under the law. And so Jesus was born under the law and he fulfilled it perfectly all his life. He placed himself under the requirements of the law as our mediator. He did so on our behalf. That's very encouraging because... uh, uh, we'll often put it this way, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And there is, in the, particularly in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is a powerful theme of recapitulation where Jesus symbolically re- recapitulates the works Israel was supposed to do but failed to do. When he goes into the desert, it's for 40 days. Why? Because Israel was tested for 40 days and they failed the test. And so Jesus comes and he does the work they fail to do. He does it on their behalf, on, as, on our behalf as mediator, and he fulfills it for the sake of his people. And you have that, that idea over and over. And that's what he was, his baptism was to do that. When Jesus was baptized for the remission, you know, for, for the baptism of repentance, John the Baptist's baptism was not Christian baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. And John the Baptist goes, not you. Everybody but you, but not you. And Jesus says, let it be so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. And Jesus was taking the place, as Isaiah said, he was numbered among the transgressors. He took our place under the law in order to do the works under the law to fulfill it on our behalf. Now, of course, he also, because he kept it, he was qualified to die on behalf of others. And he did so willingness, willingly. When we talk about, and we will several times, I'm sure, about the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that glorious doctrine, that when we believe in Jesus, his righteousness is credited to us. What righteousness are we talking about? It's this righteousness that he fulfilled the law every day of his life. He literally lived without sin his entire life. He, and he positively, in the most positive ways, he fulfilled, well, you and I have never seen this. We have not the, I, existentially, I don't know what it's like to have a child or to be a child, uh, who fulfills righteousness at all times. Jesus did so. And it's that righteousness that he earned under the law, under the covenant of works, that he credits to us. And then, of course, he bore most grievous torments in his body and soul. Now, the torment of Christ in his soul doesn't really start at the cross. Certainly, we would go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's in anguish as he anticipates the separation of himself from the Father, his alienation from the Father, and how he's in such anxiety. What a scene in Gethsemane that blood vessels are bursting on his forehead. I think you can go back even earlier as he's bearing with his knuckle-headed disciples, and he's dealing with the opposition. He comes to his own, and his own did not receive him. And the religious leaders opposed him and and raised false charges against him. All of this was anguishing to his soul. But of course, the greatest suffering he endured was on the cross. When uh, we, we, We usually think of his bodily torments, and they were great. 
Uh, you'll often read things that they can be helpful, describing what it was like for someone to be scourged. Usually the scourging killed the person. The scourging just tore up their flesh. It was just totally savage. Then to have nails driven into your hands and feet, Jesus suffered in the body for us. We would never want to diminish that. But there's a reason that after the first three hours, a darkness descended upon the land. And there was was that three-hour period where the wrath of the Father fell upon his soul. I often think of the, the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. See, that this is the divine malediction. The Lord curse you and turn his face. And the, the disdain of the Father was poured upon his holy soul. The condemnation of the malediction, the exact opposite of the ironic blessing. The Lord turn his face away from you. The Lord deny you his grace, but give you condemnation only. This was the, 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 the torment of his soul. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to make the point. That because he suffered in his spirit, the application of his atonement is not only on the outside, it's on the inside. He applies that atonement to our spirits. Um, So it included the anxiety and fear of Gethsemane, the spiritual torment of God's wrath on his soul. Now, Christ's suffering, we want to understand it correctly, was vicarious and substitutionary. He suffered for others and on their behalf. That's that's the key language. Christ died for our sins. The uh, uh, neo-Orthodox scholar Karl Barth was once asked, what's the most important word in the Bible? And uh, he could be profoundly insightful when he wanted to be. And he didn't say love. He said huper. Huper is the Greek preposition that means on behalf of. On behalf of is the key preposition for all the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. He died, he was a substitute. What you and I should have experienced, he took in our place. It was vicarious and substitutionary. And he did so as our surety, which means that our sins were imputed to him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6, right? And so Jesus, now how, how, did, how did our sins get to Jesus? Well, not by participation. He didn't participate in them. Not by infusion. He didn't become a sinner. Our sins were reckoned to him that he would bear the penalty of them. Uh, he is our surety. He became our scapegoat. You know, Le- Leviticus 16, that great scene. Two goats are brought and the lots are cast and one goat, is going to be slain to make atonement through blood. But the other goat was the scapegoat. And Aaron would place his hands on the goat. And he would be imputing the sins of Israel to that goat. And then it would be sent out into the wilderness so far that it would no longer be seen. Christ did both sides of that work. But he is the scapegoat on whom our sins are placed. And so he carries them far away. Now let me point out that this is particular rather than general redemption. Uh, Christ did not die for all people in, 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 in the same way, at least. I do think there is one general effect for all the world of Christ's uh, death, and that is the free offer of the gospel. Everyone gets the free offer of the gospel because Jesus died. 
But Jesus did this for particular persons. Jesus did not perform this mediatorial act and then say, whoever wants to benefit from it, come. That would be a great thing if he did, but he did more than that. Jesus performed this mediatorial act for particular persons. For particular persons. Uh, I, I preached at the funeral today from John 3, uh, 737, or 637. And all those whom the Father has given to me will come to me. And several times in that passage, those whom the Father has given to me. And that means if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus did this not just in principle. He did it personally for you. He bore your personal sins. If you were to go to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't mean to be absurd. I'm just making a particular point. And if you were to go to him and say, can you name the people for whom you are suffering this? He would have named your name. He would have gotten to Rick Phillips. He would have, your name would have been spoken by him. I am suffering in the place of, of Wayne Kirk. I am suffering in the place, you know, of, of Hunter Lee. I am su- he, he knew us. Jesus did not die for you because you believe in him. You believe in him because he died for you. Because then he sent the Holy Spirit. The Father ordained it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applied it. And so you, the fact that you're a believer is because Jesus did this mediatorial work for you. It is a particular redemption. Well, he fully satisfied divine justice by his death, continuing. The confession says he suffered death on our behalf. He crucified, he was crucified, dead, buried, and remained under the power of death for a time. Now, the point is that death was the penalty for sin under the law. Genesis 2.16, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus suffered death. And so his was a penal, subsidiary atonement. That, that expression in the last 30, 40 years has been the main evangelical answer for how do we understand the atoning work of Christ. He paid, he paid punishment that was due on our behalf in order to remove the guilt of our sins. Penal substitutionary atonement. Christ died for our sins, who pair for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, this is some of the greatest evangelical hymnody gets this wonderfully right. One of my favorite hymns, we sing it every Good Friday, is Philip Bliss's Man of Sorrow, What a Name. The second verse says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Now, Jesus' death was then proved by his burial. That's really, the emphasis on the burial of Jesus really has to do with proving that he died. Uh, it wasn't a fake death. It wasn't a semi-death. It was a death death. He actually died. Everything that happens to you in death, including the burial of your body, happened to the Lord Jesus. Uh, and But we need to remember that how wonderful it is we have been putting a lot of our beloved people into the grave, and it's a startling thing. But our Savior has been there first. And he has sanctified the grave, so we have nothing to fear from it. You know, I've done a lot of death. I do death. Uh, I'm around dying I'm with dying people. I see dead bodies, and it never ceases to affect me, I assure you. But as a Christian, I can look at it without fear. We will never be reconciled to death. Jesus was not reconciled to death. I, I love in John... Uh, 
uh, 11, when he goes to the scene of Lazarus' death, and Jesus has all the answers, and he still weeps. He still weeps. I, I praise the Lord he had all the answers. In fact, Jesus knew in that case he was going to resurrect him in about five minutes. He still wept. We will never be reconciled to death. Death is an offense in a world made good, a world of life by God. I never want to look at a dead body and not be affected by the reality of death. And I've been affected by each of those we've had. But thank the Lord that he sanctified the grave. And when that body goes into the grave, it goes into the grave Jesus has been in. And he makes it a place of rest. While the body, you know, when, the, when, when, a, when a person dies, their spirit is separated from the body. But we'll, we'll get to there many chapters from now in the confession where it says, the body still united to Christ goes into the grave. And on the day of his return, the soul is going to come back to that body. That body is going to be resurrected in the glorious form, and they're going to be rejoined. Christ has made it a, a place of rest while, the, while we wait for the resurrection. He also performed his victorious resurrection. Now, the resurrection, you know, is a well-attested fact. I've preached many Easter sermons going over the reasons we can be absolutely certain that Jesus was raised from the dead. And by the way, if he was raised from the dead, he is who he says he was. If you can do that, you're the son of God. And I, I, I think I agree with the many legal scholars, most of whom began trying to disprove it, and who ended up by saying, there has never been a better attested fact in all of history than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll leave that for one of my Christmas sermons in the next three or four years. I usually get around to that because there's visitors there. But his body did not suffer decay, but rose from the dead. And of course, Psalm 1610 had prophesied that. His body did not decompose. He was not in the grave long enough. Now, one thing that Jesus' resurrection proves is that the Father accepted his sacrifice. What could, if Jesus had died and we believed in him, but if he'd not been risen from the dead, we would say, but did the Father accept his sacrifice? No, the Father accepted all of his mediatorial work, and he, and he showed it by raising the Lord Jesus from the dead. By the way, the resurrection is ascribed in different places to every member of the Trinity, to the Father, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. But it was accepted. Uh, Paul has this line in Romans 4.25 where he says he was raised for our justification. And you go, now hold on, I thought he died for our justification. Well, what Paul's referring to there is that there were two parts of the priestly sacrifice. There was the offering of the sacrifice, but then there was the presenting of the sacrifice to God. And Jesus rose from the grave, having died for our sins, to present that the, the, the proof of his sacrifice to the Father, and he did so in his resurrection body, and he does so even today. For all eternity, Jesus, he was raised for our justification inasmuch as he presents in his resurrected, crucified body the atoning work he performed for us. All his claims to deity were vindicated. He conquered sin on the cross and death by the resurrection on our behalf. You know, those are the two big problems of life, sin and death. Sin makes a mess of our lives, and it leads to death, and death ends our lives. Uh, Jesus conquered both of them. 1 Corinthians 15 celebrates that. The last enemy he conquered was death. Robert Shaw says, Believers now have a certain pledge an infallible assurance of their joyful resurrection 
to eternal life. We will be resurrected. How do I know that I will be raised from the dead? How do we know that our dear beloved friends who've died will be raised to the dead because they have union with Christ and he is the Lord of the resurrection? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if you are not raised, then Christ was not raised. But if Christ was raised, you are certain to be raised. That's the biblical teaching. Well, let's not leave out the next phase. He he was born under the law. He lived under the law, fulfilled it. He made a sin-atoning death, penal substitutionary atonement on our behalf as our surety. He had a victorious resurrection from the grave. And then a glorious ascension and present intercession. And so Jesus ascended into heaven in the same body in which he died and was raised from the dead. Now, interestingly, that means, I mean, Jesus has a human body today. You go, I thought heaven was like non-spatial. I'm like, I don't know. But he's got a body there. (laughs) You and I don't. You know, people will say, you know, Bob's died. He's got. He's he's riding a horse now in heaven. And I, I think to myself, I don't say it. I'm, I'm a veteran minister, but I think it's going to be hard to do without legs. <laughs> His body's in the grave, <laughs> where it's an overrealized eschatology. That's after the resurrection that we get the body back, a much better version of it. I think mine around age 27, glorified would be thumbs up. You know, uh, better than that. But um, uh, but Christ is in heaven in his body. And he is, he, when he ascended, he, and this, this should give us such satisfaction on his behalf that he has entered into his glory. You think of the way they mocked and, and abused him. They hated him because he was filled with the Spirit. Because he spoke the truth, they lied about him. They mocked and scorned him. They crucified him. And even now in our world today, people, you know, one of the chief curse words, isn't it fascinating? is to speak the name of the Lord, of this person, in vain. It's so striking to hear it. Why would you use his name? Because that's the world's view of him. The world hates him. But my friends, he has entered into his glory. His suffering, his humiliation is all past tense. He is in his glorification. He is at the right hand of the Father. And as he told us, he has gone to prepare a place for us. John fourteen three. And he sits on the throne of authority and power as, I love Ephesians 1.22, head over all things for the church or to the church. But the, the point is, here's the question, is the church going to fail? You think of the church in China today under that incredible surveillance regime and they're trying to break their will. They really are. They're, they, just in the last year or two, they've really clamped down, particularly on the reformed churches, the uh, there's some really good Reformed churches there, and their pastors have been imprisoned. And, you know, what, Covenant Reign, Presbyterian Church, they've arrested the pastor and his wife and given their little children to communists to raise. I mean, that's about as low as you get. I'm sorry, they will not break the church. Why? Because Christ sits enthroned in authority as head over all things to the church. And, and the church will, will prevail. And so we should have courage. You know, one of the things that we never have a need to do is to cave into the culture. And we have this, if we can't beat them, let's join them mentality that should never belong to the Christian church. Now, on the one hand, we love the world. We have a desire for the world to be blessed and to be saved. We we rejoice in genuinely good things as they are, even imperfectly, in the world But why would we ever capitulate to the lies of the world or the the immoral evils of the world 
when Christ, our Savior, our mediator, is enthroned as head over all things, having sovereignty over everything that happens for the sake of the church. We, we should have courage. And there are sometimes dark times where all we have is faith, but that faith lays hold of him, and he is enthroned on high. And he sends forth his Holy Spirit to strengthen his people with all the gifts and graces that we need. Here's the great thing for us. Jesus, from his throne of heaven, is sending the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament has some big ways in which it teaches it, but also just incidental ways of speaking. He sends the Holy Spirit. Ask the Father, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who do to pray to him, to ask him. He gives the Spirit without measure. And we think of that particularly in two ways. He bestows gifts upon us. You know, you may be here as a new believer. You're just starting the Christian life, and I'm blowing your mind, which is fine. Been there myself. And you're like going, you know, I'm, a, I'm just starting. At, no, no, but supernatural things are going to happen in and through your life. And one thing's going to happen. He's going to give supernatural gifts to you. And you're going to use them in a way, maybe an obscure way, maybe in a prominent way, doesn't really matter. And you are going to accomplish things that are supernatural. And, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 lists them, all different kinds of ways. He bestows gifts upon his church, but he also bestows graces. He gives us the fruits of the Holy Spirit, patience, kindness, love, gentleness, self-control. How valuable are those things? We should be a growing people because Christ sends the Spirit that his grace would be growing us from within. Uh, He intercedes with the Father on our behalf. I wrote this out because I don't want us to miss this. Romans 8.34. Who is the condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised. And so how are you going to be condemned when Jesus Christ died for you and he was raised from the dead? More than that, he says, who is interceding for us. And so the Bible teaches that Jesus is praying for you. That is an enormous comfort to me in my own sense of inadequacy for the work God has given me to do. And so often the sense of how am I going to get this done? And I don't, I don't have to answer that question. Christ is praying. What a comfort it is to know I can be sure of this. As I have prayed, Christ has prayed for me. And so when you parents are trying to do family worship and to do Bible memorization with your children and prayer, Christ is praying on your behalf for that thing. You're going, oh, how's this ever going to stick in their hearts? Because Christ is praying for you and for them and for me and for his church. What does he pray? He prays for the conversion of the elect who have not yet been born again. He prays for the support and the strength of struggling believers. He prays, so. I love this line that Shaw gives. He prays so that the blessings which he purchased for the church, for believers, might be enjoyed by them. I love that line. Things like what? Like righteousness, peace, and joy. Why should you and I not have joy in our hearts? You go, well, because I live in a really stressful world. I'm tired all the time. And I got lots of massive issues. And I'm poor. And I, you know, I just bounced a check. And my carburetor's going out. How's that for starters? It's impressive. Christ is praying for the joy of the Holy Spirit to be yours. 
He, he purchased the joy of the Lord to be your strength. And he's praying for the Holy God, the Father, to send the Spirit. That you and I would have peace. That you and I would have peace. Often when I'm, I'm meeting with those who are some way into the process of dying, I will pray for them to have peace. And how often I've seen the Lord answer that prayer. That he would give peace because Christ purchased that peace. We think of all the, all the spiritual blessings, Romans, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has granted every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Christ prays for the Spirit to bring those blessings into our lives. Righteousness, peace, and joy, faith, hope, and love. Jesus prays that we would be accepted by the Father. We are sinners, but Christ prays. Of course, by the way, it's the Father who commissioned. It's not like the Father wants to send us to hell. No, he loves us. He elected us. But he sent the Son to do this. And before the justice of the Father, the atoning work of the Son pleads our acceptance. It's that great hymn by Charles Wesley. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. He pleads effectually for our justification, for our acceptance, our reconciliation, our adoption, our glorification. And he pleads, yes, that our works offered in faith would be acceptable. And his intercession is ever successful and never failing. Those two verses I list, Psalm 21-2 and John 11-42, both talk about how the Father hears the Son. And gives him the desire of his heart. Christ's prayer for you are answered. Well, then we have Christ's final return and final judgment. This one hasn't happened yet. Jesus will return bodily and visibly to all the world. You think of Acts uh, 111, the, when, when he ascends, the angels say, As he ascended, he will descend visibly in clouds of glory. And of course, uh, Chad today in the funeral read from 1 Thessalonians 4. You think of Romans, uh, Revelation 1-7. Lo, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him. By the way, this whole notion of the secret return of the Lord Jesus, like, you know, you got the cry of the archangel, that's not secret. The, the, the trump of the Lord, that's not secret. Every eye will see him. It is not a secret return. It is the public, age-ending return of the Lord of glory. At a time unknown by us, but fixed in the council of heaven, we're told suddenly, like a thief in the night, we're to be living as those who know this is coming. Well, he comes to, the, to end this age of the world in the final judgment. And the ungodly, sinners apart from Christ, will be judged with eternal death and torment. Matthew twenty-five forty-six. Christ's people, the righteous, not in themselves, righteous in Christ, will be rewarded for their service. Enter into the joy of your master. The final judgment is final, followed by the eternal age of glory in which believers are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so you have Revelation 22, 21, 4 and following. The age of glory to come. All those spectacular descriptions. I think the, second, the last part of Psalm 23 also depicts the age of glory to come. Um, well, let me close with this word from Robert Shaw. He says, this is an event in which we are deeply interested. 
since we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we should occupy our talents till our Lord comes, that we may receive from him that best of plaudits. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I do pray that those words burn in your heart. And you, you, you make choices because you, because you, you want to hear them. And, and, and you, and, and because you're, it's kind of a gravity. It's not just that you, you want to deserve it. It's all by grace, but it, it exerts a gravitational pull upon you. And your life is being pulled in that direction. Well, hallelujah. What a savior. Our Lord Jesus was furnished by the Holy Spirit that he would fulfill all the work of a mediator. He would fulfill all righteousness under the law, that he would make the sin atoning death for the forgiveness of our sins, that he would rise victoriously over the grave, that he would gloriously ascend into heaven where he is sitting, he is ruling sovereign over all things to the church and he's praying for you and he will come back soon and every eye will see him. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do pray. I pray that our hearts would be enlarged at your love in the work of your son, because you appointed him to all of this. But then, Lord, he did it. And he did so, as the confession says, most willingly, because he loves us. And, Lord, we are loved with an everlasting love. How can we ever understand it? But I pray, Lord, that we would receive, even from this teaching, the comfort of it, the joy, the thrill of being joined together with Christ, that there's a supernatural power at work in our life even as we are those on whom he has done all things. He has done it. We are saved. Cause us, Lord, to live with these things in mind, that that doxology that we tend to sing, that would be the theme of our lives day to day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.